Good afternoon, everybody. Apologies for being a bit late to start, but we were just waiting for everyone to come in. So if everyone's ready, we can get going. I have no idea if the mic is working, so if you can't hear me, just tell me and I'll speak up. Clearly it is working. So just briefly for everybody who doesn't know us, I work with Anitox. We've been in the pathogen control game for over 40 years, and we work with more than half of the world's top 20 producers in some form or other across pathogen control or milling efficiency. My name is Matt Oldnell, I'm Technical Services Manager for EMEA and Asia Pacific, and I work as part of a team under and tutelage under Dr. Enrique Montiel, who's currently in the States. Having recently completed my thesis in chemical control of salmonella in feed matrices, I hope to have a handle on the topic. So what is the problem with salmonella? The problem with salmonella fundamentally is, as we all know, it's a human illness. We are the beginning of the feed chain. The consumer might be distant from us, but we're not that far away in terms of pathogen amplification. Salmonellosis costs the EU about 3 billion euros a year, with an average of 91,000 cases. And if you spend hours in the data, you'll see that it hasn't actually been a statistically significant drop in salmonella cases in humans since 2015. Even with all the lockdowns and the visual degradation of the graphs, the statistics don't agree with the reduction. And it's not just a European issue. At the end of last year, the US announced a new policy initiative called Healthy People 2030, in which Secretary Wilsack highlighted and spotlighted the poultry industry and their role within controlling this target. Their target is a reduction of 25%. And they have the belief that 23% of their incidence in humans is due to the consumption of chicken and turkey. And as you can see, I've literally just pulled these straight out of Google, the top of the chain. It's going on all the time. You've all would have seen the news recently with other things. But if we dig into the actual data, this is not atypical. This is the UK, but it is not atypical of what I see on a daily basis. And if you look at the layer graph, for example, we haven't had any significant movement in the incidence of salmonella in layers since 2013. We've had a drop in the trend, but we've gone right back up. And the broiler graph speaks for itself. It's on its way up and up and up. I do, however, want to highlight some of the wins we've had. We are starting to control and have maintained control of the five regulated cerevars, Phytomerium, Enterocystis, Hovar, Virchow, and Infantis. So now we've got an idea of what the situation is and where we are with salmonella. How is it getting into the feed chain? As you will all know, it's a multitude of facets. There's mechanical ways in, feed, water, litter, environment, vertical transmission from parents to progeny, and horizontal transmission, which is lateral flow between flocks. And the reason I picked this picture from the Lohman breeders is I really, really like the way it illustrates all the different aspects. And the size of the circles also highlight the relative risk that is applied to each of the things. And feed, no surprise, is a re relatively large risk. In an infographic, I'm going to try do. Now, bear in mind it is a bit clunky because I tried to map out a broiler operation. So just work with me. But I think it's a very nice visual way to look at it. If we have a farm and a broiler inter integration, feed <coughs> whoever you want, and we have a rodent bring salmonella into one poultry shed, that's the implication. It's not high, it's manageable. There's obviously trade implications for that, but it is a manageable thing. If we look at vertical transmission, which everybody knows is well documented, a lot of money is spent on vertical transmission vaccinations because of that. 
complete and utter operational infection. Now, the feed mill has the same capabilities. Now, it's worth noting that the feed mill might make breeder feed, it might make broiler feed, it might make chick bar crumb, but one contaminated feed mill can take all your operation out of play. I want to stress here though, feed and vertical transmission are incredibly important. The transfer from parent stock to progeny does not necessarily always have to be vertical transmission. As we've just discussed on the feed mill side, if there's a resident salmonella in a conveyor belt on the way to final silo product, you've got an issue. The way I like to highlight and look at this, and I've called it amplification, you can call it what you will, and I've specifically chosen peas. And the reason I've chosen peas is what's going on in Ukraine and other issues. Global raw materials, as everyone will know, are going through the roof. The Green Deal is pushing us all to start to look to more alternative proteins and how we can look at them. So we need very, very simplistic amplification. If you had 29 tons of contaminated peas off a farm, it's not a huge amount off a farm, at the 5% utilization in diet, that becomes 600 tons of contaminated feed. If we work on the assumption that we're dealing with broilers at 180 grams a day, so towards harvest, that sort of feed level consumption, it's 1.25 million broilers that are exposed. Imagine if that was starter feed when they're eating 40, 50 grams. So it is an issue, and amplification is a big thing. Feed mills were designed to make large product fast to feed birds. This is the, the counter argument to the issues we face. As everyone will know, and we've discussed it, and we'll just go through a bit of science, feed is a fomite, it is a vector for all sorts of pathogens. Baccarat did a particularly interesting study in Canada, uh, published in 2004, but it was a 13-year study on salmonella incidence in different raw material types. We know most of the time raw materials are slightly higher in prevalence than finished feed, but there's also risk profiles in all of them, as everyone will know, animal you know, pap, animal protein, meat and bone meal, generally higher, all the way down to grains, which is lower. Now, grains will have contamination, but because of the nature of grains, you have other bacterium on there, lactobacillus, all out-competing salmonella. As we've discussed briefly before this chat, in a feed manufacturing process, <coughs> you've got pelleting, you've got heat treatment, you've got all these interventions we've made, but all they need is oxygen, moisture and warm air. And we give it to all salmonella in the cooler. It's a fantastic environment to grow. But it's not just the cooler where recontamination keep going. This work done by Shrimpton, so we've known this for over 30 years now, it's an escalating scale. The further away you get from point of manufacture, the increased risk becomes. And this is something to bear in mind depending on what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve, which we'll discuss in a little bit. From the recontamination and the stories we've gone through all of that, there's been some work recently by a lady called Nikki Shariak out of UGA. And what she did is she genetically studied, through a CRISPR technique, salmonella populations in situ. For example, one of them, I'm highlighting the meat and bone meal, had 11 different serovars in it. But our natural testing has bias in it. We were testing that meat and bone meal. We'd go through pre-enrichment, through enrichment, onto the XLT4, and we would naturally pull off the largest colony. That does not necessarily mean that's the most prevalent colony. It could be the colony 
that is thriving in that specific environment. It might not thrive necessarily in meat and bone meal, but it could take off in the bird's gut, for example. This, it, this study for me, and maybe I'm just being a bit nerdy on it, I think this has huge potential for us to start to really track where we're going in the feed shape and have a better understanding. And with it being her, her study, she's going lots and lots of work going through, and we are happy to be part involved in some of it. If we move past Salmonella, we know feed and feed matrices are vectors for multiple pathogens. We can go on to AI, ASF, there's all these pathogens going through systems all the time. Clostridium perfringens, necrotic enteritis, one of the biggest issues in the broiler industry, can be tracked back to feed in some cases. So, now we know what to do, you know, we need to fix it. Somehow we need to come up with a fixing strategy. And I'm a firm believer that there is no one silver bullet. It is an encompassed holistic <coughs> thing. And it starts at the feed mill and it finishes all the way at the consumer. Start with, you know, pelletizing, heat treatment, all the way through vaccines, your lion code, for example, in the UK, which is a very good example of control of salmonella through quality assurance programs, all the way through to making sure the consumer is educated to cook their meat right. So we look into the toolbox of how we can control it in a feed and feed matrix. We effectively have three tools. We have heat, organic acids, and feed sanitizers. And each of them has to be used in, con in, con con in tandem with the situation you are currently in. And it's not as simple as one size fits all. Stuff like capital constraints, regulatory constraints, the target consumer of your product, and the risk profile of your business and the age and history of your facility. Now, to put that into more context with a bit more of what I would call a real-life situation, if you are an oilseed producer, let's call it rapeseed meal in Finland, Romania, or Germany, you have what they call positive release. So you have to test. If it's negative, it can go on the open market. If it's positive, you have to treat, retest before you can sell it on the open market. This, for me, is a perfect reason to look at the capital constraints of how you're going to deal with your problem. If you're producing 1,000 tons a day and you have 18 finished product silos, it's not an issue. So you can look to use something like an organic acid, which will give you the protection and you have the whole time of three to five days. If you only have six finished silo bins in this situation, you don't have that time. You don't have the time to wait five days. So you're going to have to knock your capacity and your production back by 20, 30, 40%, whatever it would be. Then the use of a feed sanitizer where the chemical activity will reach peak between six and eight hours, allows you to get that product moving again, get the test. So it saves you in ways like that. Another way we can look at it, and this is one that I spend a lot of time looking into and I really, really like it, is if we look at genetic stock and how you would utilize and treat genetic stock. Heat treatment is almost a given on genetic stock. It has to be done. But the temperature and dwell time are particularly important. If you look at some research that's come out, you need to do a heat of 86 degrees for six minutes to eliminate Salmonella seftenberg, which is the most heat stable of the Salmonellas. But we've just been through recontamination. So you've made it perfectly sterile, nutritious feed, and then we're gonna run through a dirty feed more again. So that you would want to look at looking something like the heat treatment, decent dwell time and temperature, in tandem with a feed sanitizer call it one and a half, two kilos a ton, to prevent recontamination all the way through. Because the challenge is clean feed at the point of consumption. Uh, so, may I have a question? 
uh, uh, sanitize after heat treatment yeah, at the cooling point or packaging or if we are packaging the feed? In mixer. Well, in most, mixer. Yeah, the feed sanitizers are thermostable, so they can go through the heat process. Yeah, the mixer is before pelleting, yeah? yeah. yeah. So uh, after pelleting, the... The activity stays the same. They're thermostable, the feed sanitizer, so they can go through the heat process and still work. So it takes a minimum of two hours for the chemical activity to really get moving, and yeah, about four hours you've got the activity. So you've got the thermostable control across it. It's also not uncommon in Europe to do heat treatment and um, organic acids interference stock feed. And the point of that is to reduce the pH in the feed, make it unfavorable for salmonella yeah, to proliferate. Yeah, we're using organic acids. Yeah, we're using organic acids. And it, it just creates an unfavorable environment. So it's, it's quite a common one as well. Where was I? Sorry. Another one I see in my sort of daily life quite a lot is what I would term a problem facility. Now, a problem facility, bear in mind I'm from do a lot of my work in the UK, it's an older facility where even with extreme hygiene measures, they've stopped production, they've cleaned it all out, they're still constantly reseeding the final product. And we've looked and we've looked and we've looked. One of the interesting things with speed sanitizers is you can play with the chemistry and the state of the chemistry by the dosage rate. So if we use a feed sanitizer in a particularly high dose, we're talking at the rate of 20 to 25 kilos a ton, you can make it into a gaseous form. It starts to gas off the, and it goes into all the nooks and crannies. And over time, it slowly starts to clean the microbial background of the feed. This is quite a common thing we use in places. In oilseed, they also use it, depending on the mill, on the facility, but it is something that gets used quite often. And it's having that understanding of how we can manipulate the chemistry at times to do what we want it to do. And if we move away from salmonella for a second and we get, get into <coughs> other pathogens like we discussed, Clostridium perfringes, etc., etc., you're going to look towards chemical treatments to remove those because they're spore forming. So heat doesn't necessarily do what we want it to do. And we want to get rid of it, this production. Bird performance and bird production at stake here. There's money on the table that is being left by having what I would call variable microbial feed load. Mm -hmm. So we want to try and get that as clean as you can. Under the guise and the principle, if you put less pathogens into the bird, your gastrointestinal tract is one of your main forms of entry to pathogens. If you minimize that, you will have less inflammatory response and better performance. And this comes very neatly into the commercial advantages of clean feed. And this is coming back into, it's not just salmonella, but pathogens as a whole. But first and foremost, it is salmonella. Food safety, for me, is pre-competitive. It should not have any negotiation, whether it be whatever form it is. It's something we need to always remember. The consumer is our customer, not the farmer. And there's implications for having salmonella positive, as we discussed in some of those news articles, trade restrictions, reputations, brands. Big businesses in the US have had a lot of financial damage by law cases for positive salmonellas. And then as we discussed, the morbidity and mortality and the performance benefits of clean feed. Now, what I wanted to highlight on this, because I've already highlighted it, it's always seen as a cost. It isn't a cost because each and every mill, each and every place has its own unique strategy and you can do it in a very <coughs> economically constrained manner, depending on what you're trying to do. And then contort the cost, not just, okay, we put X amount of pounds into the feed, look at where your benefits come later on in the supply chain. In summary, 
I just wanted to show you this. I like this infographic. For me, it's very nice. If you break the chain at feed, you're going to affect a hell of a lot more the supply chain than if you broke it, for example, at the, the broiler farm or in the States, if you broke it at processing where they can use parasitic acid. So it, it comes back to the amplification point. So the final remarks I'd like to make are the link between salmonella in feed and humans is well documented. Over 500 publications. If you're like me, you'll try and read them all, but you will get a good night's sleep. Then sustained efforts are always available, tools are there to do, and feed is an important vector. One of the things I wanted to show, having touched briefly on the impact of clean feed and the performance benefits of having clean feed, and you must please bear in mind this is very preliminary data. This trial is still ongoing. So this is a trial using clean feed in broiler breeder hens in the US. As you can see, it only goes up to 55 weeks. We are literally halfway. And we are seeing performance benefits. In this case, it is alluding to a 3% differential in hen mortality. So the implications for that is extra hens per hen, eggs per hen house, extra broiler chicks. You can follow that all the way through. You can use those numbers however you want to go. And this is where us as Anytox are now starting to focus some of what I would call our R&D dollars, is we're starting to look into this. The next phase of this study will be to hatch some of these eggs out and have a look at seven-day mortality. We know feed sanitizers from layer studies we've done have a, over a course of time, the eggshell starts to clean up. So that should have an impact on bird mortality at seven days as well. And then the other one we're starting to look at is treatment window application. For example, in broiler operations, we have one ongoing in the UK currently. We understand the cost involved or something. So is there a treatment window where you can maximize the performance benefits on a bird? That work is, is complete, it's waiting to be written up. And the answer to that is, so far it looks like, yes, there is a statistical difference. If you do it at the right time, in the right dosage, in the right manner, you don't have to do the cost all the way through. So. Thank you all for attending, and if you have any questions, please do shout. One more thing. Uh, I, uh, I don't have competence in it. I just need to ask. Uh, I have heard about using polio chicks also. There was an mention about it. Do you know anything about it? Uh, if someone is using already, uh, have you heard of it? Yeah, look, there are lots of people using probiotics in the, under the, the guise of competitive yeah, exclusion. Yeah, that's antibiotics, but polio. Probiotic, yeah. Or, uh, and it is, I mean, it's quite a commonplace in some places. Europe's probably higher, more so than, say, the States and Asia on this. Um, but they use it under competitive exclusion, under the guise. Put good bugs in, yes, no space in there. Yeah, we're a good management farm, so they're using probiotics generally. Can you get your product line? Do you have any products covered that work <coughs> organic acid level? Yes. Do you have any focus around that right now? Yes. So we do have, actually, one of them, we are launching a new one at this show and George is launching it in about an hour um, and that's called Portrol and then there's another one we have called F4. So one of the reasons we've looked into this and tried to move it forward another step is we understand again you know each situation is different so we've gone to a situation now where we can apply both at the same point as the guys here. Under theoretical Example, your feed milk, you do vaccine eggs, you're going to need feed sanitization to give you that control level to do the vaccine eggs. You might not necessarily want that level of control and that cost associated with layer feed. So you can be able to switch between the two at the same application point, same installation point, to try and get a better hold of needs per diet.
think that is all the questions. So thank you all for attending, and please help yourselves to some tea and cake.